listening to Hawks Insiders, home of quality analysis, special features, match recaps, interviews, and so much more. Follow us on Substack for extended coverage of all things brown and gold. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Golden Years Revisited, a pod where we take you back to relive some of the greatest moments in Hawthorne history. As a warm-up to this weekend's game against the Saints, we take you back to one of our wonderful discussions with our Team of the Century fullback, Kelvin Moore. Listen as he discusses the road to our second flag, a premiership with so many storylines, which were great to relive with our club legend. Enjoy the episode as we take you back down memory lane. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Golden Years podcast, where the Hawthorne Football Club is always the winner. My name is Ashley Brown, this is episode 26, and after last week, we're going to stay in premiership mode, and don't we need it after the debacle that was the loss to Essendon uh, the other day. Our guest will be Kelvin Moore, and he's going to join us shortly to discuss the wonderful 1971 Grand Final. But first, let, let me introduce you to my co-hosts, uh, Andrew Weiss and Darren Levine. Gentlemen, hello. Hi, Ash. Daz. Hey, bit flat today, but, um, you know. Nothing like, uh, nothing like having a chat with uh, Team of the Century uh, Hawthorne footballer to pick spirits back up. That's true. Yes, we are recording this the day after the Hawthorne defeat against Essendon. So we need to pick me up and what better to look back at the times when Hawthorne was winning big games. And uh, before we continue, don't forget to visit hawthornefc.com.au and the official Hawthorne app every day for all the latest on the Barossa Valley Hawks as they are at the moment. And don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at Golden Years Pod. We are here to turn back the pages of history. And there was lots of history to be made on this day in 1971. Hawthorne and St Kilda were both chasing that second piece of silverware and superstar Hawthorne full forward, Peter Hudson, needed four goals to break Bob Pratt's record for the most goals kicked in a season. He came into the game on 147 goals. The record was 150. John Kennedy had returned to Hawthorne as coach in 1967. There was gradual improvement over the first three seasons a bit of a step back in 1970, and heading into 1971, there were nobody's flag favourites whatsoever. They were tipped to be in the middle of the pack, and there was a strong belief that Hawthorne was far too reliant on Hudson. And I think the stat was something like he produced 30 to 40% of the total amount of team goals, which people felt wasn't sustainable to be a premiership team. But they lost just three games for the home and away season. They were tough, and they were fit, and they were hard. The zoning system, which had been introduced in 1967, and which we'll get to it with Kelvin, had delivered the club some champions from the sort of Frankston and Gippsland area, such as Lee Matthews, Peter Knights, and Kelvin Moore, who we're going to speak to. Kelvin could have played for St Kilda because the area was also, uh, the Frankston area also had a lot of players who joined St Kilda uh, from that region. And the persistence of Hawk recruiter Ron Cook, who we spoke about last week with Morton Brown, delivered the most sought after recruit for a decade. 
Peter Hudson, the full forward from Tasmania. He arrived at Glen Ferry Oval in 1967, and by 1971, he had already become one of the greatest full forwards in the history of the game. So, Jens, before Kelvin joined us, what are your recollections? What are your thoughts as, well, as you, you think about that era for Hawthorne? Um, so this one was very much before my time, but I think uh, the, the most incredible thing about the 70s was this contrast between really brutal, um, uncompromising footy on the ground and then off the ground, uh, you started to see the showmanship and uh, flares, bell-bottoms, uh, platform shoes, just all of this kind of um, uh, kind of fashionista things happening off the field. And I just absolutely love the contrast of, of the 70s. Yeah, for me, uh, there are a couple of things that stand out having a look at this game and the time. One is um, how good the Saints actually were through this era for only winning one premiership. And obviously with how good we go on to become through the 70s, it forms part of the rivalry, which we'll speak about. Um, And the other thing which Ash, I I guess, a bit of a thought and question without notice, um, we're starting to pick off members of the team of the century, um, of which Kelvin Moore's at full back and and he's held in such high esteem. Uh, Other than... Looking back at highlights, I didn't get to see much of him play, but the only comparison I could really make is, you know, growing up watching Chris Langford play and how he was as a solid key defender, always taking the best backman um, that that I assume Langford makes the bench on the team of the century that we're kind of comparing very similar footballers. Kelvin Moore was a, uh, played a bit less flair and dash than Langford. That was partly a byproduct of the era because a fullback played. Didn't, didn't venture mark past the half-back line when you were a fullback back then, but he was a, a really reliable mark. His judgment was outstanding. He knew when to spoil, knew when to mark. Uh, he was the set-out guy. The fullback took the kick-outs, so he was a beautiful kick of the ball as well. Um, and just made excellent decisions. Always, and just never seen that big bag kick on him. You just knew with Kelvin Moore that the, you were in very safe hands with him at fullback because very rare that opposition full forwards got a hold of him. There's always a big debate around that era as to who was better fullback, Jeff Southby or uh, Kelvin Moore. And knowing a lot of Carlton supporters, it was an argument I was always involved in. And then there were the David Dench fans as well. So it was a golden age for fullbacks, different sort of era to, different sort of game to how they play it now. But, uh, he was a wonderful footballer, Kelvin Moore, and just just entrusted he, he knew that he was going to make the right things and do the right thing by the team. And tough as nails too. Like every, it, it just unbelievable how tough these guys were, and the kind of mentality of like you know getting on with it after being smashed in the head with your, half your ear hanging hanging off like Hutto um, is just hard to hard to watch that vision and think. How, how that would happen now. Just, it's just impossible. And Kelvin is with us now. and he's, Let's get him on the line. Kelvin Moore, welcome to the Golden Years. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Ashley. Really good to have you here. I grew up watching you play at Patrolling the Goal Square for the Hawks. Uh, wonderful to talk to you. So I want to start with, you grew up in Frankston um, and we're going to talk about the 71 Grand Final and the great rivalry between the two clubs. How, Frankston in those days was divided between St Kilda and Hawthorne in terms of residential zones. How far were you from the St Kilda zone? How easy could you have been a St Kilda player? 
Um, well, just thinking back, Ashley, it was uh, was when zoning came in, and and I think you probably might remember. I think that must have been about 1967, 68. Yeah, I was around. I remember it, but I was around. <laughs> but yeah, no, nah, but I thought you might have known the background of it. Um, it was about 67, 68, and Frankston was split in two between Hawthorne and St Kilda, uh, and I know that. Some of the people you would have grown up with, or you knew, I think you mentioned Gary Colling, weren't you? And he ended up playing for St Kilda. Yeah, no, well, Gary Colling and myself played in the same junior side. Um, and there obviously had been Travis Pays and Stuart Trott prior to that. But it wasn't so much it was split in half because when zoning came in, um, Hawthorne had the zone from like Morty Alley Creek right down the peninsula. But Gary went to St Kilda because in those days they had a thing called a Form 4 or whatever, but he was the last player to sign up because St Kilda must have had a spare one uh, with St Kilda before zoning came in. If he hadn't signed up, he um, he would have been in Hawthorne zone, basically. Right, okay. So he just beat it. Tell us about... Um you hadn't made the finals for four years uh, in Kennedy's time. What was the feeling um, going to 1971? Did you feel like it was a bit of a make-or-break season for the Hawks? Well, being being pretty young at it, um, no, I didn't think that. Uh, going into the season, we, we weren't sure what lay ahead, but obviously with the zoning and... Um, Hawthorne, Ron Cook in particular, being fairly shrewd in his lobbying, what to get because uh, St Kilda thought they were going to get the peninsula. Um, he also was able to snare part of Gippsland, where Knighty and Leon Rice and Tucky and those guys um, came from. So we had a fairly good balance of a side, I suppose, when we had. Um, we had the young players, myself being one, and Leon Rice, Peter Knight, who unfortunately missed the grand final, but um, and Lee Matthews, of course. Um, plus, there was sort of local talent like Alan Martello, so there was a, a bit of a blend of youth there. Um, Bruce Stevenson was another local. Then the, you know the older brigade were, at that stage was probably Dave Parkin. Uh, I suppose Normie Bustle probably won't like to hear me say that, but, um, you know, Desmar, Peter Hudson, and, you know, an in-between sort of bracket like Kevin Heath and uh, Jeff Angus, um, Bremner and those blokes, and, you know, obviously Don Scott um, and Bruce Stevenson. So, you know, there's a nice blend of um, youth and experience, I suppose. And so the season proper, we won our first five matches, so started the year flying. How soon into the year do, do you feel like there, there was this notion that we could actually win the flag? Yeah, we probably weren't thinking flags. We John Kennedy wouldn't allow us to do that. But uh, obviously, yeah, we, were, we, we won five uh, on the trot including St Kilda down at um, Moorabbin, who we convincingly beat. So, yeah, we had a fairly, you know, we, we, we knew we were sort of 
could go to something special, and um, which did eventually. Um, so David Parkins described that Hawthorne-St Kilda rivalry as second to none during that sort of five to six year period. Um, tell us about playing against the Saints and what, 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 was, what was that feeling like between the two teams? Well, they're always hard, tough encounters. Um, obviously coached by coaches who had similar philosophies, I suppose, and it was a no-nonsense sort of a, a philosophy and, you know, keep your eye on the ball and running straight lines. And um, so they were always hard um, and physical games because you had blokes like Dietrich's Cowboy on there, you know, just to name a couple, and we had obviously Scotty and... Lou was only young, but he was pretty physical. Um, so, you know, we had a bit. So, yeah, we used to go at one another quite quite a bit right up to that that particular game too. But, yeah, it went on for a couple of years after that. I suppose St Kilda wanted to um, um, well, get us back, if you like, after being in a winning position, and we took it from them. So, uh, yeah, they were. They were always hard and tough encounters and a fair bit of blood spilt. It's interesting you talk about how hard things were on, on the field and how intense that rivalry was. But then off the field, you guys were getting around in bell bottoms and, um, and flares. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, and platform shoes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I think I think Scotty took all that to a different level. But um, we didn't all go for the handbag. But uh, yeah. But yeah, that was a, a different sort of a set of series, fashion-wise. <laughs> yeah, you're right. An amazing contrast with Scotty, the fashion plate off the field, yeah. and hard, hard as nails, and an unbelievable warrior on it. Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, you wouldn't pick him walking down the street, as the bloke you see on a Saturday, you know, running around the field. Um, yeah, yeah, some of the some of the gear that Don wore and still does, by the way, is <laughs> um, quite remarkable, and um, yeah, it certainly can stand out in the crowd. How did John Kennedy feel about it? Oh, look, he just <laughs> look. He, he didn't even like the because Don had reasonably long hair then, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> But uh, he wasn't all that happy about shoulder-length hair and that, but I think he just, in the end, just copped it from, from Don in particular, who was in the fashion business. So I suppose that was his out. Mm. So speaking of, uh, speaking of Kennedy and, and being a little bit angry, uh, after the second semi where you know, in the last quarter the Saints kicked 5-9 to our 1-2 to come home pretty hard... Uh, believe he wouldn't let you guys sing the club song after the game. Um, yeah, gee, I, I can't quite recall that, but that probably could have been the case because we were very lucky to, to hold on in that because they had, um, I can vividly remember Travis Pace having a flying shot right near the end on the run and he missed. And uh, I think someone else did, yeah, because we only hung on by, what was it, four, two or four? Two points. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Do you remember well, what the feeling was like? The song, I'm not quite sure, but uh, I, wouldn't have put, I wouldn't put a pass in. Do you remember what the feeling was like after the game? I think it was a, a bit flat because we'd been in a fairly strong position most of the day. And... 
obviously, I don't know what, no, it didn't put doubt in our mind, I suppose, but it, it certainly uh, gave us a flat feeling that we were probably lucky to make it into the grand final, to be honest, from memory. So it is. It is about 49 years ago. I'm struggling <laughs> with some of the memory. And you did lose Peter Knights as well. So uh, that would have been... And he was a Victorian player that he was a, he was a star already. So you lost him for the grand final. Yeah, he... he what just, sorry, Ash, what was the question? Peter Knights, he, uh, he got injured in that semi-final. So that, that would have been adding to the dampener as well because he was a really important player to the side by then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he was um, obviously a main centre-half back and... A really rising star. I think they lost Macintosh, their centre half, back in the same game. Um, just forget his first name, um, John. John Macintosh. So it was probably one for one in a lot of ways because he was a fairly um, a, a good performer for them as well. But so Nighty, um it was a bit of a tragedy that you know, what happened for him. So um. Uh, get over the line in that semi-final. Uh, what do you recall of the build-up to to the grand final? There were, this is the kind of the beginning of that era of the big TV build-up and that sort of media interest. What what are your recollections of that time? Um, it was more about well, yeah, the you know the training and everything during the week. There was big crowds. There was big bigger crowds, and we got at some games. Um, so it was it was fairly. Uh, Fairly full on, I suppose, as far as the pressure and the press and all that sort of stuff went. And um, it's a, once again, it's a bit hard to think back and think exactly what what was going on. But um, like all grand finals, I suppose, there's a big big build up. It's got bigger and bigger, of course. Uh, but for for myself personally, I think it was probably only about my twenty, oh, maybe twenty third game or something of that nature. Um, that was a big thing, and you know, you dream of you dream of that sort of stuff as a kid, um, playing in one of those. So it was a pretty pretty nervy time, to be honest. Particularly the morning of the match and driving to the ground, and my wife Sue would tell you that. Uh, I wasn't the best company on the way up. <laughs> um, road rage took its toll at times, but not that I got out of the car. <laughs> and, then, and then the feeling of, I guess, walking out with it, with such a mammoth crowd and I've heard other players, um, I think, call it like stepping out into a vortex. What was your, what was your recollection of that? Yeah, thing? it really is... Uh, you know, never you playing in front of it. I think there was like a hundred and eighteen thousand people. Um, that did give you a feeling of sort of like walking on air type of thing. Uh, when you when you run out there, it was it was so lifting, and uh, yeah, it was. It's just a a special a special feeling. It's very hard to describe. And so the actual. Let's get to the actual game itself, the the actual grand final. Memories of the first half is was the was the game was the first half as dirty as everyone says it was. Well, yeah, there was. In those days, there was no there was no trial by video and those sort of things. There was always 
backhanders and elbows and four other things going in. And it, the way we played it and both played it, because in those days there wasn't a set of square and there we had a, a system, I suppose, that we pushed a lot of players into the midfield to open it up for Hutto, really. And, and it was very physical physical in there. It was a pretty greasy sort of a day too, a drizzly, um, a drizzly day. So, uh, yeah, it was on from the start. Um, and I think, gee, at half-time, uh, you know, scores were pretty close, I think. You might have the half-time score in front of you. Yeah, you two, you're two points out at half-time. You'd lost two players. And Hudson was, was groggy. Robert Day, who we'll get to a bit later, he was concussing off the ground. And I think someone, Les Hawker, I think someone had done a hamstring. Yeah. You're already at half-time. You're effectively down to 17 or seven and a half players by half-time. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, Hutto chopped one, obviously, and had, you know, half his ear hanging off for the rest of the day. And, um, yeah, Robert Day went down. He made it through to half-time. But Les, poor old Les, he, he only got through from an injury point of view, which was an ankle, I think, but he pulled a hamstring, I think, in the first quarter. So, yeah, you're right. And we were down. And then I think I think Carl may have tried to make us even a further person down. He tried to take Heathy out of it, I think, but it didn't quite connect. Um, so, yeah, we were, we were. We were up against it as far as manpower goes, you know, for the second half. And so I don't know whether they had any injuries. Of note. So, what was the feeling like then at three quarter time? Because uh, not the greatest third quarter on record, four goals to one, and we're twenty points down at three quarter time. Were you guys nervous, or was there still an air of confidence that you guys could do it? Oh yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was a bit of both in a way um, because we. We did. We didn't have a, a greatest quarter, and we we were even further down with a few minutes to go. I think um, Ricey kicked a goal um, to put us twenty point. We about twenty six points down, so we got within that. And even um, we we went up, and we I'm mean, not personally thinking, oh God, don't say we're going to come all the way and this is going to happen, because it was as I said, it was a fairly greasy day, um, and even Kanga, who was fairly uh, always pretty. Positive. It even gave the indication that he'd sort of um, nearly conceded because he said something like, "Well, if we're going to go down, we're going to go. You know, we're going to go down, fighting type of thing." And um, he left the sort of at that. Everyone, all the trainers went. But uh, to his credit, Don Don Scott, who uh, wasn't even captain or vice captain, rallied everyone together and said something along the lines that's bullshit we're not going to cop this we're, we're going to win this so just get out there and just think positive and you know he gave us a bit of a a bit of a um, inspiring type of a short speech and he did lead the way actually right from that first bounce in the last quarter um I don't know if it was Minot or Dittrich's up. He ran straight at and then followed it up and I think not long after kicked the first goal, which sort of just set the ball rolling. And, um, gee, within about 12 minutes, I think we were in front. 
in the last quarter. So I remember I got tickets for a bloke I worked for. He didn't bury, bury for Collingwood, but he left at three-quarter time, thought we were gone. By the time he got to his car and turned on the radio, we were in front. So, And then the slug began again, you know, when we hit the front. Uh, so it was... Um, but once we got in front, I think the, the feeling that probably we had at three-quarter time had got into St Kilda players. So... We started playing like winners then. So, uh, it must have been a magical time to be in the ground, just to turn a grand final round from 20 points behind. Any players you thought were responsible? I know Scotty gave you the G up. Were any players you think uh, in the last quarter who, who got you going? Well, obviously, Don. But, you know, I mean, Lee Matthews kicked a big goal. He, he started getting hold of it again. And um, obviously, well written that Bob Keddy hadn't had the best of days and um, he was opposed to my old teammate Gary Colling and um, well he had a big quarter and you know he ended up they moved him you know Hutto out to centre half forward and um, and as groggy as he was I can remember I actually took a mark somewhere near centre half back and kicked it long and he took a great pack mark Hutto and which went down and we eventually, I think Keddy might have got one of his goals. So, gee, it was a bit of an overall performance because, um, uh, you know, blokes like Mick Porter and those guys, you know, stood up and I think everyone really did, did stood up. But I suppose the main, the main player of that last quarter, I suppose, was Don. And um, I mean, Crimo, you know, I could go on, I suppose. I've known just about everyone. So, <laughs> yeah. but it was, a, it was a real overall sort of a performance in that last quarter. In 2001, the AFL record went back and looked at all the grand finals between, up until the, awarding the North Sooth medal. They gave you best on ground in 71. Said if it had been North Sooth medal in 71, you would have been best on ground. You must have had a pretty good game. Um, yeah, well. Yeah, I did. Um, I think as opposed to Alan Davis, and um, he kicked six or seven in the in the preliminary final the week before. He didn't play in the second semi. He must have been injured. But yeah, um, to answer your question, yeah, I um, I sort of held my own down there. I thought. <laughs> And I think further to that, I mean, you mentioned before you're 23 games into your career. You've had a more than decent game in a grand final uh, and you've just won a flag. Like, that just must have felt pretty surreal at the time. Oh, well, it is. I mean, that really is that childhood dream I was talking about before. And and you know what they talk about, the money and stuff. It's funny. In those days, you used to... We had paid night at the end of the season and... um, I got a cheque for, I don't know exactly the amount, it was just over $1,000. And I looked at the cheque, I never had a cheque for $1,000 before in my life. <laughs> I thought, how good is this? And I've just just fulfilled a, a childhood dream and I've got a 1000 bucks for it, you know. <laughs> that was just the, the way you thought then. But it was a, um, it was an unbelievable feeling, yeah, to be... 
yeah, to play, you know, just in the 23rd game or whatever it was. And, uh, and one thing I do remember of that grand final, and the first time, I think it was, you said before we won five in a row to start the season. I think the fifth one was St Kilda. And Barry Lawrence was playing full forward at that stage. And we, we had a bit of an altercation down in the goal square. We both got reported by the goal umpire and we got suspended for two weeks. But I remember after the grand final, to his credit, he was down playing on Hutto, and he made a beeline and ran straight up. Not that I knew him very well, or anything, but he made it and ran straight up and shook my hand and congratulated me, which I thought, wow, that's... I don't know whether I would have thought of doing that if we had a loss, but it was... Um, very surprising, but most appreciated. Just on that, that next week uh, when we lost a got by a goal to uh, to Footscray in round six, uh, Bernie Quinlan kicked six goals. W- would he have been the guy that you were on? Maybe you were the difference and the reason we weren't <laughs> six on the trot. Did he kick six? Oh god, he. Uh, I used to have a bit of trouble later in the year with Bernie when he was at Foot, uh, Fitzroy. So I don't know how I would have gone there. I might have been fortunate to miss that one. Um, I was probably pretty fortunate. I, only, I missed two games and then I missed another one later in the year. So I, I only played in one losing game that year against Richmond, from memory. Yeah. So um, I'd had a bit of a charmed run. <laughs> Up to Len and a bit after. Because uh, in, co- in this COVID climate, not pumping the tyres up here, but uh, uh, my grandson Fletcher has been, he's right, loves doing stats and everything. And he came up the other day, or the other week, and he informed me, he said, Oh, you know, Pop, you second at all time of the most winning games before your first loss. <laughs> and I had it up, and it was something like 18, I think, you know, because I had played the last two games of the 70 season and then missed those, missed the ones that I, that we got beaten um, right up into the Richmond. It was some, some bloke back in the 20s or something, one nineteen. I forget what his name was, but um, I was a bit blessed there for, for a year or so. That's an amazing stat. Um, Peter Hudson's milestone, did, did that overshadow? I mean, that, that was the other story, the grand final, Hutto trying to break Bob Pratt's record. Did that overshadow the, the week? Did that play a big part in the build-up? Do you think it, in the game it was a, became an issue in that last quarter when he was trying to get that fourth goal? What do you recollect of that whole uh, episode sitting alongside the grand final? Yeah, oh, I didn't view it that way. It was a big part of the build-up, you're right, because I think he only needed, what, four, didn't he? So, yeah, and I think he kicked three in the first quarter before he... Did he kick three in the first or two? Well, or? he had three by half time. Yeah, okay. Um, until that collision. Yeah. I mean, obviously the press and the tally and that made a, a big deal. It didn't, it didn't sort of overshadow. It didn't have a, an effect on, on us. I mean, if he got it, we were hoping he'd get it because that meant it'd be another goal to the tally. But... Um, he probably was, and a couple of things happened that was so um when he kicked into the man on the mark. It's, I reckon that's the only time ever I can remember Hutto doing that. Um, and then he missed one on the run coming in, so he, he had a couple of opportunities, 
but things just um, weren't to be. What was it like playing with David Parkin as your captain? Yeah, no, he, he was um, he had good leadership, David, and it was nice for him, you know, because he was next to me in the back pocket. So uh, it was handy as a young guy. Um, yeah, but no, no, he, he was he was always a very steady influence and a, a steady player. Uh, and yeah, no, he was. I've never sort of thought of that that much, but he was. He was more. Oh, I had some good back pocket players. Talking about some other te- teammates, I think for the for a lot of Hawks fans this year, the one shining light's been uh, the kind of emergence of Will Day. What was uh, what was it like playing with his um, with his grandfather Robert? Um, obviously, he didn't have much of an impact on the '71 game after coming off. But yeah, what was he like as a player? Yeah, no, he he was he was good. He came over. Um, oh, I don't know. He must have been in his late twenties when he came over, because he only played for a year or two. Um, but he was. He came over. He'd been a very good centre man. So he played in the centre quite a, occasionally for us, and um, he, he was quite electric when you know when he was on. But he he played quite well. Off of the back flank, you know, get the, getting the run off the back flank later in that particular year. So that became a pretty important move for us. And losing him was a hard one to hard one to cover in a lot of ways. After losing Knightsy the previous week or a couple of weeks before, so the half back line took on a bit of a different look. Um, with him, I'm just trying to think who went to the back flank. I think Mick Porter went come back down to the back flank in that particular day. So, um, you know, normally Bustle generally played on a back flank with Ian Bremner. So, uh, yeah, it was different, but he was a good player. And you're right, it's nice, nice to see young Will do well. I'm not sure how he went yesterday, um, but his previous games have been a, the shining light and a bit of a... A down year for the Hawks. Did you see a bit of your, uh, his grandfather in his in his game? I wouldn't say that. I think they're built a bit differently. He's fairly lean. I mean, when mm-hmm. Robert came over, he was a well put together sort of a centre man type. Where Will's pretty light on at this stage, so I think he might be a bit taller too. Will, mm-hmm. um, maybe even a bit stronger overhead. Hope Robert doesn't get this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, another teammate of yours on the day, um, Peter Crimmins. Obviously, we know the Crimo story and how everything unfolded in '76. Uh, looking back now, does it make playing with him in the '71 flag a little bit more special? Yeah, well, it does because um, Crimo was. Uh, he was a really the in between me. He got, he got, you know, the, he, how can I put him? He's literally a lynch man. You know, he'd, he'd be having like barbecues every second Sunday at his place, and he really got the young and the older blokes. Who I spoke about earlier, he, it formed them into a had a great influence in forming them into um, a, a, a good team or a good body of guys that got along well. And uh, he was just. Uh, Sensational, sensational personality and person, Grimo, and very important. And yeah, and it is that probably when you 
don't think it at the time, but when you do look back that Fortune didn't sort of uh, help him in any way and he, he missed out on those and subsequently um, left us. So, yeah, it's very, very sad for everyone, just um, everyone in the club and everyone outside the club for that matter just had a, had a liking for the, the little Megsy. So he, he was, uh, it was a pleasure to play with him. While we had a quick shout out to the books come out, uh, the Crimo book with Dan, uh, written by Dan Eddy. I'm reading it at the moment. It's fantastic. Thirty four ninety five just been released. So here's a little shout out to read that book and, and you learn a lot about Peter Crimmins, the man and the football. So I, I can't recommend the book enough. Kelvin, what I find fascinating about the St Kilda Hawthorne rivalry from the 70s, as hard as you went at each other on the field, I understand you used to play social cricket matches against each other. So I find that extraordinary because it was such a big rivalry at the time. And so much blood, as you said, blood spilt. Yes. There you were playing cricket against each other. Yeah, and I'm just trying now you say that. It went on for a, it went on for a few years. It was an annual event. Um, I, think they, I think they may have had the upper hand in the cricket. Um, and I'm not sure who, who was instigated that. Uh, I don't know if Stewie Trot and those blokes did have something to do with that, but it was, yeah, that became a... Um, so we did socialise a bit, but we didn't sort of socialise much with St Kilda. Because they never had, used to have, you know, you used to have the after, after match and everything, which was a big part of the day. <laughs> And you did get to know a bit of, few of the opposition players, and uh, but they never used to have one. They never used to put one on. So um, I don't think we invited them when we had one. So, uh, <laughs> but we did socialise on the cricket days. So yeah, it was probably a um, a strange set of circumstances to have you know be so uh, have such a rivalry going, but we'd have like a well sort of semi-friendly cricket match. And two of the protagonists from St Kilda, Stuart Trott later became your teammate and Alan Jeans became your coach. So that's a, for two sort of well-known St Kilda people eventually became part of the Hawthorne camp as well. Just to, again, another little twist for that rivalry. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Because Trotty, um, I don't know, he had a bit of a falling out there at St Kilda and, and he, he had a, a menswear shop in the heart of Hawthorne and um, I think one of our committee men approached him and he. Um, he ended up coming with us, and yeah, he was a good bloke. Because obviously, being a, a Frankston boy, I, I knew him, and um, we played at the same club, but not together. Because he's, he's oh, no, maybe two years older. Um, so it was, and yeah, and then along came Yabby, of course. So um, yeah, it was a bit of a turn of events, apart as far as all that goes, all the rivalry and things that went on in the early seventies. So. Um, yeah, Trotty was a bit unlucky in grand finals all round because 76, 78, um, no, 75, actually, he um, he was playing when we got beaten and just missed out of making the team yeah, in 76, I think. Yeah. So you play 300 games, you make the team of the century, mainly wearing the number 15 other than your first year. Did you feel any... Um, any newfound connection to the era of greatness that saw Hodgie come and immortalise, re-immortalise, I should say, the number 15? Um, yeah, it was nice. I was actually part of that. 
was at Hawthorne as um, chairman of selectors, I suppose it was, uh, when Hodgie came on board. And I was part of, oh, well, here, John Hooker, myself, at that start, used to do the numbers and that, and what numbers were free. And that was his number one pick. So I thought, oh, well, um, that'd be good. I'd like to have the number one pick. We're at number 15. Didn't think he'd play more games than I did, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> he ended up wearing it very, uh, very proudly, very well. And uh, yeah, um, um, it was. It was nice to see that number doing so well for so long. And um, he, he, he was a great player. And uh, he's a great bloke too. Cause I had a bit to do with him in his early days. And so one more question from me. I think um, our pod's called the golden years and really the, the 70s and the era that you played in. Um, we actually last week covered the 61 flag, but we managed three flags in the 70s that you're part of, 71, 76, 78. Do you have a favourite? And, and how does this 71 flag compare to the 76 and 78 flags for you? Oh, look, obviously they're all fantastic, but the 71 holds the, um, being the first, I suppose, um, and possibly the way we won it, coming from behind, all those sorts of things, probably makes it my special if I was to say which one. I'd say 71. And... Um, it was, yeah, I mean, 76 and almost 78. I mean, we probably won reasonably comfortably. Not to say that that's any lesser value on them, but uh, it was nice to win comfortably, by the way. And, uh, yeah, but if you to answer your question, definitely 71. And, uh, and oddly enough, I have, I have stronger memories of things 71 than I probably do 76, 78, although 78, 76, I, I can't, I do remember a lot of it, but uh, 78, you know, Phil Baker and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, but 71, definitely, without a question. 78, you end up on the pub, on the wall of every pub in Australia with the Phil Baker mark. Yeah, well, I got it hanging on the wall here, upside down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I always say to people like that, you just, you know, I think the, I don't know if the scoreboard was in the, just in the corner of that that picture. Just look at that. Don't worry about the mark. But uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, he was a, um, he, he was a specialist at those types. That's why I, I sort of went against the grain a bit when I was moved on and even played played him a bit from behind so he didn't have anything to jump on and that seemed to work pretty well. Before we go, last question. You played in a golden era of fullbacks. There was yourself, there was Jeff Southby, there was David Dench. I think Harvey Merrigan at Fitzroy uh, yeah. was pretty good as well. Gary Malarkey down at Geelong. Um, what do you think that era? Do you think that's the greatest era? Of, I reckon it still is the greatest era of fullbacks. What, 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 and what was it like playing fullback back in that time, a different sort of era of footy? Yeah, well, it probably was. I'm glad you mentioned Harvey Merrigan because he's um, he, he was probably a uh, 
unobtrusive or you don't hear much about Harvey, but he, he was a very good player for Fitzroy. And, yeah, I mean, it was the ones you mentioned. And, well, I think, yeah, it has changed because, I mean, it was man-on-man, basically, all over the ground for that matter, whereas now you can't tell who's playing at fullback, really, um, because they swap around and they're never on the same opponent. Um, geez, I would have liked that. Too. I would have liked the way they do it when, you know, the bloke kicks a goal and then runs off. I would have liked that around my time. I would have, I would have really liked Doug Wade or someone to kick a goal and run off, but I don't think that would have happened. I don't think Doug would go along with that. But um, it was. I mean, they were the ones you mentioned were all great players, and it probably was when you think about it. Probably was uh, as far as fullbacks go. Um, probably one of the better eras. Yeah. And who was your toughest opponent? It was also a great time for full forwards. Who was your toughest opponent? Well. Very, definitely early in my career, Doug Wade was um, out at Geelong. He, he was, and then he went to North. But he, uh, he, he just his strength and uh, marking, you know, strong marking and that sort of stuff. And those days, the bloke, the the, the Wades and Hutto, those blokes never hardly ever missed. Um, not like today, from twenty metres out, you still <laughs> got your fingers crossed, haven't you? But um, Look, definitely, definitely Hutto was, not Hutto, um, I'm glad I didn't have to play on Hutto, um, Doug Wade, but, you know, you go through them all, every side had a, um, a, a pretty good full forward, um, you know, even the lesser lights that you don't hear much, you know, Essendon, Alan Noonan, when he was around, was a, a good player, and blokes like Barry Richardson, Richmond, and... Um, Ray Biffin was a full forward. He was a full back as well. And those blokes weren't, weren't easy tasks by any means. Probably weren't recognised as the, the real star full forwards. And um, obviously later in career, Malcolm Blight was, he was, you know, obviously you know how mercurial he could be. And uh, he, he was a tough one. And I mentioned before the bloke, the bloke that I had the biggest problem with later in my career was Bernie Quinlan, even though we we're probably similar age. But he... He, um, well, he was never out of range, was he, unless he was a full back. Um, he, he could kick it from any, you know, 80 metres out. So, I mean, he was a hard, hard one too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I always say early Doug Wade, middle, middle, class, middle times, you know, probably, probably uh, Malcolm Blight and then, you know, Bernie Quinlan. All right, Calvin, been terrific chatting to you about uh, a fantastic day for the club and a, a, just a great time for footy the 70s was that's something I grew up started falling up with the game watching footy in the 70s was a, a brilliant time so thank you for your recollections and your thoughts and we might talk to you again on the Golden News podcast oh it'll be a pleasure yeah no thanks Ashley Andrew and Darren yeah no it's been a um, been a good good little chat and uh, if I can help you out again it'd be my pleasure Thanks, Kelvin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Kelvin. And that was Kelvin Moore talking about the 1971 Grand Final and a great era of footy. Let's have a listen to some highlights from that magical day at the MCG. Hudson Murray behind him. Hudson's mark. The kick's on its way. It's a beautiful kick. He's put it through. Hawthorne kicking towards the scoreboard. And it comes a tap down towards Crewens. 
Crimmins fires, it's a goal from Peter Crimmins. It's a big kick, don't tell me he's put it through. In comes Wilson, gets a hurried kick. It's Hawthorne going forward now. The ball comes back. Oh, it's going in all directions. Taken by Martello. Martello, a long kick down forward. A battle wall going on. 12 yards out, directly in front. He kicks. Hawthorne. Desmar traps the ball. Swings it in towards the goal square. It's going over the top of his He should kick it. Up he comes. He kicks. Oh! Goes to the flank position on the outer side. The sun comes out as the ball hits the ground and Heath sends it back to the weak position. Siren goes. Siren goes. Hawthorne, our premiers, 1971. Your final score, Hawthorne, 12-10-82. Defeated St Kilda, 11-9-75. Again, a scoreline that every Hawthorne supporter should have committed to memory. The Hawthorne team for the back line that day was David Parkin, Kelvin Moore and Les Hawken. Half-back line, Robert Day, Norm Bussell, Ian Bremner. The centre line, Leon Rice, Jeff Angus, Des Maher. Half-forward line, Bob Keddy, Alan Martello, Mick Porter. Forward line, Kevin Heath, Peter Hudson, Lee Matthews. Followers, Don Scott, Bruce Stevenson and Peter Crimmins. And the reserves of the 19th and 20th man, as they were, were Ken Beck and Ray Wilson. The coach, of course, was a legendary John Kennedy Sr. And in terms of stats, 27 possessions to Des Mar, 22 and 20 hitouts to Don Scott in what was an amazing performance, 21 to Lee Matthews and 18 apiece to Kelvin Moore and Leon Rice. Uh, as Moore talked about, Bob Keddy uh, stepped up in the last quarter. He ended the game with four goals three to Peter Hudson and two to Crimo. And in what must be some sort of record, we managed to receive 45 free kicks in a game of footy. But before you get too excited, gentlemen, it comes as no surprise that the Saints did better. They had 52 frees paid, so 97 frees in a game of football, would you believe it? I thought that umpires were supposed to put away the whistle in a grand final. What was going on there? What was he thinking? Field umpire Peter Shields, and you know, my very, very early memories, I sort of started following football a little bit the following year, but I do remember Peter Shields being sort of one of the first sort of good umpires of the time. So, uh, very tough game, and uh, the, the whistle didn't deter the players from getting up to all sorts of... Uh, all sorts of no good. Uh, David Parkin says of that grand final that the first half was played without the ball. Lee Matthews has said of that grand final, I did some things on the footy field that I'm a bit uh, ashamed of looking back on it these days. That's all, Pat, all you really need to know about yeah. what sort of game that was. Yeah, I think uh, as, as Kelvin alluded to, you know, there aren't all the cameras and my word, what, what would have happened back then if double demerit points were in place for Grannies? <laughs> I was going to say, though, for, um, for some young supporters that may not remember that era, the final story, Doco, which is on YouTube, is just a fantastic document of that time running through all the fashions that we spoke about through the, the absolute brutality on, on the field. So definitely check that out. It's a fascinating grand final in a few ways. Um, what, doesn't, what we didn't mention with Kelvin... Uh, he said, talk about Leon Rice kicking that goal late in the third quarter. 
Carl Diderich, big bad Carl Diderich, was running amok that day for St Kilda and threatened to win the... And Hawthorne really just had no counter to his physicality. And then what happened late in the third quarter was that um, Ray Wilson and I think it was Mick Porter lined him up and collected him at the same time. And, and Ray Wilson was quite a clean player. It's the father of Tony Wilson, who you probably know of, the, uh, the writer. And, um, big Hawthorne supporter wrote the 1989 book. They cleaned up Diderich, and Diderich was pretty almost as concussed as Hudson was for the last quarter. So one of the reasons Hawthorne were able to come back in the last quarter was Diderich had no real effect on the game. He was running around in a day. So things you price you have to pay to win a grand final, and I think those two gentlemen would say that uh, what they did might have been out of character, but it was sort of pay the Priceian almost, uh, to quote Alan Jeans. The other thing that's really notable about this game, talk to older St Kilda supporters, you know, people of, uh, in their 50s and 60s, and they talk about the sliding doors moment of the three-quarter time of the 1971 Grand Final. What happens if St Kilda wins a premiership? Um, John Kennedy wouldn't have three, probably doesn't win three premierships, given Hudson gets into the next year. Does he? Is he a legend of the game? Um, the St Kilda supporters would say if they would have broken through in 171 and the, they probably would have, they could have won one or two more premierships. They wouldn't be a club with one premiership by one point. They would have won in... 72 and 73, they're arguably the best team in the competition that year without winning the flag. And uh, talked to St Kilda historian Russell Holmesby, who's a mate of mine, and have a very long conversation about the whole sliding doors of the 71 grand final and, and the belief it gave Hawthorne yeah. to then go on and win a couple of flags after that. And then maybe the ball bounces the other way for Stephen Milne as well in the, uh, in the Collingwood so game. And that's funny because so many of our pods start with our sliding doors moments leading to greatness. Uh, Perhaps there's a market for the uh, the dreary, the dark and dreary years podcast for the St Kilda Football Club. <laughs> and of course, we're recording this pod ahead of uh, the round six or 15 or 16, I can lose count, whatever it is these days, game between Hawthorne and St Kilda. And uh, things aren't going suitingly for the Hawks, but uh, any time they play St Kilda, you only look back at games like this one. And of course, your favourite game, Andrew, of all time, to know we're never, ever, ever out of it when we play the Saints. Spot on. So remember that before the game on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Where can we find you on social media, guys? Uh, so I'm on uh, Twitter at Darren underscore Levine, uh, L-E-V-I-N, and then back in the Herald Sun on Mondays now writing a advice column for some weird reason. So we'll look forward to that. And you yeah. can find me via WeCO9 and at my sport live on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at hash brown, hash with an H brown with an E, and in the pages of the AFL record and online at sen.com.au. And how's our socials going, Andrew? Yeah, great. We cracked our 100th rating on iTunes, which was nice. And uh, I think it's just worth a shout out to uh, our followers who have all been on board. We had a nice run of. Uh, 11 matches, losing the free kick count this season, which came to an end. But in uh, Operation Sir Swamp and trying to get him to give us some some stats, uh, we got a lot of support from a lot of people trying to push that through. And uh, the mystery remains unsolved whether Swamp was purely just ignoring us or he actually, dare I say, doesn't know the answer or is working for the AFL. So I, talk, 
I told you it doesn't work for you. I, thought, I'm afraid that. <laughs> I know, I know. That was He's like... an independent operator and uh, he comes from Colac, the same place as Luke Hodge. So he might even have a bit of sympathy for Hawks. I don't really know. But uh, <laughs> no, no, I love tongue in cheek because I love, <laughs> I absolutely love his work. And we always give a shout out to JS underscore K, our mate Josh K as well, who also is the stats guru. Um, that has been the podcast for this week. Thanks once again to Amy and Matt at Hawthorne Media HQ for all their help in getting the podcast to air. We're going to run a few more of these before the end of the season. We're going to take a break, I think, when the players do. Uh, but we've got a few good ones in store for you before we finish up in a few weeks' time. So thanks once again to everybody, for, as, as Andrew said, for your support and your encouragement and any suggestions. And uh, we've got plenty more uh, that we'll get to next year as well. A lot of games, a lot of great Hawthorne games that we haven't got to yet. Any last words, Andrew? Oh, it's just really wonderful to tick off another um, Team of the Century member, one that's always been held in with great awe and respect when you talk about Hawthorne legends of the past and certainly didn't disappoint. It was, again, a wonderful way to go back and have a look at a time with one of our great, great players. Yeah, he was incredible to talk to Calvin and he even cuts a very imposing figure in a tiny Zoom window. So uh, it was, was terrific catching up with him and then also hearing about Robert Day. I think a lot of Hawks fans will love the idea of someone with the 1971 Premiership DNA uh, carrying through to this generation. I think when Robert Day joined Hawthorne, or Will Day joined Hawthorne, there were a lot of uh, unfamiliar phone numbers popping up on his phone with uh, wishes of good luck and invitations to dinner. I think the 71 Premiership team have made a point of adopting him as their own, which I think is a, another great touch uh, for the Hawthorne Footy Club, as it's known as the family club. That has been the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time on The Golden Year. Goes to the flank position on the outer side. The sun comes out as the ball hits the ground and heats into back to the wing Thanks so much for listening to Hawks Insiders. Head to our Substack for more quality analysis, special features, news, interviews, and so much more. 